I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a mega series that's been dedicated and pretty much revolved exclusively around the Batman storyline known as Hush. Now, it needs to be said that this is a pretty well-regarded storyline among a lot of Batman fans. In fact, I dare say it wouldn't really be all that challenging, really at all, to find people who point to Hush and would tell you, you know what, this is Batman done right. This is basically the definitive Batman, at least to them. And on the one hand, I mean, it's I understand the, the temptation to want to look down one's nose at that, but I look at, you know, the stories that I regard as being definitive, and I'm not sure that very many people would agree with me on that. And then you start getting into sort of like celebrity Batman fans, people like Kevin Smith, who he at least claims he's read a shit ton of Batman comics, but fucking all he ever seems to talk about is The Dark Knight Returns. So what am I supposed to think? So I don't know. I guess the point is, everybody has uh, a preference, I suppose. And so, you know, who am I to tell somebody that they're wrong to love and prefer one Batman story versus another, right? But there's another issue going on here with Hush, and that is that I've come to regard Hush as sort of like the series finale for what I at least consider to be my my Batman, I guess, on a canonical level, like from a canonical standpoint, what I consider to be Batman's story. You could kind of view Hush as being sort of like the series finale for all of that. Now, to be clear, this is not the end of Batman. As a matter of fact, this doesn't even attempt to be the end of Batman's story. But this is 
You know, Wizard Magazine back in the 90s used to talk about, you know, such and such issue as a great jumping on point for new readers and stuff. And that was a, just a, a really big marketing term at the time. You know, the way it works, at least in my mind, is that Wizard was being paid by some comic book company or another's marketing department to list certain comics or certain titles or certain whatevers as a great jumping on point and bullshit like that. And what nobody ever talks about is the great jumping off point. You know, what can you regard as sort of the the end, maybe not necessarily of the character, although maybe it could be that too, but the end of the story? Because, you know, when you really think about it, I mean, guys, none of us are going to live to see the end of these characters. It's just, it's fucking not going to happen. You know, so what one must do is basically decide for oneself what does my personal continuity consist of? In my head, well, what's my head canon, you know? And so, at least for me, from a, I guess, a canonical standpoint, this Batman, which is to say my Batman, starts off in Batman Year One. He goes right on through, and then his story, not the character himself necessarily, but his story wraps up in Hush. And what I came to realize is that there are so many things that happened after Hush, you know, with this character and with these characters and with this universe and just weird fucked up things that were being done in continuity, so on and so forth, that what I, when I was reading some of this stuff, what I realized is, you know, I don't like this, this, these stories. I don't like these plot developments. I don't like that the you know, maybe some of these characters are being brought back from the dead, so on and so on and so on. And so, you know what? Maybe my Batman, maybe his story ended from a canonical standpoint. Maybe his story ended sometime before this. And then when I reread Hush, what I realized was, you know what, motherfucker? You can read Hush and you can interpret this as sort of like uh, an an end point, sort of like a series finale, you know, where the story goes on, but it's just we don't see what happens after this. And so if you don't want certain things to have happened to this character after the series finale, well, you know what? They didn't. Or if in your imagination certain things did happen after this story wrapped up, then, hey, that's great, they did. A good example of what I'm talking about is the way that I tend to view the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And guys, honestly, the way I tend to look at it is Buffy died in the fifth season. That's the series finale. She sacrificed herself to save the world. Her story ends. Buffy ends. Right now, yes, I'm aware that they brought her back in the sixth season and then the show went on to the seventh season and now it's a comic book and all this other stuff. But there are just so many fucking stupid things that happened with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, just I guess as a corporate property beginning in the sixth season and then just going right on through from there that what I started thinking was, you know what, maybe she really did die in the fifth season and that really is where the story ends and maybe all these other things didn't actually happen, or maybe they happened in an alternate universe or whatever, but they didn't happen to 
in my head canon, they did not happen to my Buffy, you know? And I'm not trying to take anything away from stuff like Once More with Feeling or The Body or any of these other episodes that I think were really strong and really powerful in their own right. I'm not trying to take anything away from that, uh, from, from those stories or from those episodes, but the context in which those episodes were aired or which those stories were published is just so fucking stupid to me that, you know what? I choose not to accept those things in my personal headcanon. You know, I just don't, you know? So at least from my standpoint, Buffy Summers died in the fifth season finale, which is in fact the Buffy series finale. And that other stuff, it either didn't happen or it happened maybe, like I say, in an, in an alternate universe or just fucking whatever, you know? But not to my Buffy. Her story ends with her self-sacrifice in the fifth season, you know? And what I realized was that that made the story overall a lot more appealing to me, you know? And it left a lot of things on the table, to be sure. But it also kind of gave... Buffy sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end where she started off in the show not even really wanting to be a slayer. And then in the fifth season, we saw her take her job so seriously that she sacrificed her life to save the world. You know, and I realized, you know, that's a that's not a bad little character arc for her to go through, you know? And this, of course, is not to speak of the fact that I don't think that Buffy as a TV show ever really recovered from the Scoobies graduating from high school. There's something about Buffy and her circle of friends trying to cut it, trying to make it through high school, and that the minute they are taken outside of that context, you can still have good stories and you can still have entertaining seasons and whatnot, but something gets lost. You know, and so when I when I really started looking back, especially at the fourth season, you know, the fourth season, look, I don't think the fourth season of Buffy is anywhere near as bad as the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. But, you know, when you think about how awesome the, the third season of Buffy was and then you follow that up with the fourth season, it's like, what the fuck? You know, so again, you know, this to me speaks to kind of a little bit of a like a nosedive in quality that the show was obviously taking. And so when you end the story, even if it's just in your imagination, if you end the story in the fifth season, now you're spared a lot of that, you know? And so it just works is what I'm saying. And the same basic principle to tie it all back to Batman, the same basic principle is at play with Hush. This allows me to sidestep things like the fucking retarded return of Hush the actual bodily return of Jason, of uh, Jason Todd, uh, Damian Wayne, trying to convince us that he's Robin. Basically anything that Grant Morrison did during his run. So on and so on and so on. You know, all of these just fucking stupid things. And God knows, you know, the new 52 and thereafter. You know, all of these just fucking stupid things that were, ha that, that were happening and being done with Batman. That now, by terminating my headcanon with Hush, I get to say, you know what? That stuff, 
If you guys enjoy it, fine. But I think it's fucking stupid. And now I don't have to act like it even exists anymore in continuity. That stuff just went bye-bye, you know? And that's really, you know, the the benefit of Hush because it's it's a big and sprawling episodic story, you know, where you have this character pop up and then you have this character pop up and you have this character pop up and all of that stuff. And Batman, he's he's doing sort of like Batman's greatest hits and he's he's uh, he's getting into all of these fights and stuff and he's meeting all of these different characters and all of this stuff. And then it the story I don't want to get too far ahead into stuff I haven't actually covered yet, you know, at least synopsis wise. But this story ends clearly on a very different status quo than Hush started with. And what I realized is, you know what? This isn't necessarily a universe destroying change to the status quo, but it's a big enough change to the status quo that I think you're, you're well justified. If you want to, to say this is where not necessarily Batman ends, but this is where the story ends. And I'm rather fond of that. I'm kind of taken by that idea. And the reason I'm spending so much time and being such a pain in the ass about explaining all of this stuff to you guys is I want to make it clear that, you know, there are levels on which I really do like and enjoy Hush as a story. You know, there are a lot of things I think it does really well. But you're probably going to hear me throw some serious abuse at the story in at least a few cases in this show. And I want to make it clear that to me, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when it comes to Hush. So even though there are certain things that I think are kind of stupid, even with Hush, it doesn't, it doesn't outweigh the good, is what I'm saying, you know? So... All of that is a long way of introducing Batman, number 618. <sighs> Cover date is October of 2003. On sale date is August 27th of 2003. Cover price is 225. Title is The Game. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Editor is Bob Shrek. Story synopsis for the game is as follows. Jason Todd is ready to slit Robin's throat and accuses him of being a pretender to the role. Catwoman arrives and dives down on top of him, freeing Robin from Jason's grip. With the boy wonder out of danger, Batman takes the opportunity to engage Jason directly. Batman stabs him in the leg with a battering and then delivers a, cru a crushing punch to the solar plexus. The two continue to trade blows until Jason takes to higher ground. Jason confesses to cutting the bat line earlier in the story, which caused the Batman to plummet nearly to his death in Crime Alley. Batman begins to suspect that this may not actually be Jason Todd. After several more minutes of intense fighting, Batman wins out over him. From there, Jason's features slowly dissolve into a river of clay that slips through Batman's fingers. And it turns out that Jason was in fact Clayface in disguise all along. More frustrated than ever, Batman goes to Oracle's clock tower in the hopes of finally solving the mysteries that, had been, that, that have been plaguing him of, of late. 
Oracle shows Batman the electronic relay device that Batman discovered in the cave. This device was, was and has been used to learn all of Batman's secrets, including his relationship with Catwoman. Batman learns that the person responsible for installing the device was his old friend and technician, Harold. A few days later, Batman drives out to Gotham City Bridge where he secretly meets with Harold. He's now standing upright and can properly speak. Harold confesses to planning the monitoring device and explains that the man who hired him healed his physical deformities and even fixed his ability, or rather his inability to speak. Harold is extremely remorseful for betraying Bruce and apologizes. Just as he's ready to reveal the name of the man who hired him, a shot rings out and Harold falls over dead. Batman whirls around to find Hush standing behind him. To be concluded. So, what did I think? Well, taking it from the top, this is a kind of creepy cover, guys. It's basically Batman dashing around the rooftops of downtown Gotham City while the specter of Jason Todd's corpse hangs in the imaginary foreground behind him. And then in the imaginary foreground behind the imaginary corpse, we see a pair of eyes that I think we're supposed to interpret are the eyes of Hush. So all around, this is a pretty effective, kind of shocking, but still pretty effective cover on balance. So getting into it, you know, onto page one, what we see is basically kind of similar to what we saw a little bit in the previous issue, which is to say uh, fits and snatches in Batman number 617. We see sort of a, a flashback of, of Jason. It's hard to be sure actually what we're seeing. You know, is this Jason inside the warehouse right as it exploded back in A Death in the Family? Or is it Jason lying in that big pile of rubber, rubber, <laughs> rubble after the warehouse exploded or what? I don't know. It's sort of uh, sketchy and the background is deliberately unclear. And so, you know, you're left kind of wondering. I mean, it's it's recognizably Jason. Don't get me wrong. But it's just what exactly are we seeing? I mean, he's bruised. He's all chewed up. He's bloody and stuff. But what exactly are we seeing here? You know, so, you know, you can kind of get, I guess. Uh, the flavor that this is something from a death in the family, but what exactly are we seeing? You know, what moments specifically? And honestly, there's nothing in the art to tell you one way or the other, because it's all just so monochromatically red. So then from there, we get a close up of modern day Jason, but it's not actually Jason. It's actually Clayface, but I'm going to keep calling him Jason for the time being, even though this is not Jason. I don't care what comics were published after this point. This is actually Clayface in disguise. That's my headcanon, bitches. So, anyway. This is a close-up now. Page 1, panel 2 of Modern Day Jason. And the kind of neat thing is he's wearing a domino mask, yes. But this is not just a Robin domino mask. This is... It's a kind of vaguely bat-shaped domino mask. Somewhat. Not exactly as bat-shaped as Nightwing's ma uh, mask but still a little bit bat-shaped nevertheless. And it's also red, so... Or at least it has red highlights, so I, I choose to interpret it as red. Take it or leave it. 
So, and then basically from here, what we're seeing is this is on page one, Batman and Jason kind of having a standoff with each other. You know, Jason's got a blade to Tim's throat, so Batman doesn't want to risk Tim, but he doesn't want He doesn't want to just let Jason get away with this either, you know? And at the same time that all that's going on, what he's thinking to himself is that, you know what? It This may actually be Jason because it's not exactly impossible for someone to come back from the dead. I mean, Superman's done it. Green Arrow's done it. So the fact that this guy claims that he's, or at least has implied that he's Jason... Maybe he is. It's theoretically possible, isn't it? So, before too much can get out of control, we get into page two, and Catwoman basically swoops onto the scene and disrupts Jason's whole action here. That allows Batman to swoop into action, and from there, the fight, the fight's on. So we, what we see is basically Batman fighting at least who he believes to be Jason. And I got to tell you, you know, guys, on the first, you know, sort of reread of all of this, this was something that I thought was really emotionally compelling to me because, you know, as a comics fan, you always kind of wonder, well, what would happen if Batman and Nightwing ever really duped it out? Or what would happen if, you know, back in the old days, Batman and Jason had ever duked it out, you know, or, or just whatever. You were you, you kind of wonder about, you know, how a fight between certain characters that are never likely to actually trade shots with each other, how a fight between those people would actually play out. And so this there is a sort of a fanboy kind of itch that's getting scratched here with Batman, at least superficially fighting Jason. Now, like I say, it comes out that this isn't truly Jason. It's actually a doppelganger. It's Clayface in disguise, but you don't necessarily know that the first time you're reading the story. You might actually wrongly believe that Jason has come back from the dead, even though Jason has never come back from the dead. He's still dead, but you don't necessarily know that when you read this story. And so it does kind of play to, I guess, that sort of, that sort of fanboy wish list of, you know, just a bunch of shit that you'd love to see happen in a comic sometime, but isn't ever likely to. And so that was sort of the, that's what was playing at least through my mind the first time I read this. You know, wow, Batman's kicking the shit out of Jason. I mean, I always kind of wondered how this would play out. I mean, in my imagination, it would always be that Jason would be able to put up a little bit of a fight, but push comes to shove, Batman would be able to take him out fairly effortlessly, you know? And I, I mean, I dare not speculate on the one hand, but on the other hand, I can't help thinking that that's something that Jeff Loeb was actually somewhat aware of because on page four, what he has Jason saying is, did you think you could take me with one punch? I mean, this is always our problem. You saw me as second rate. Not, be, not being able, to, this is some kind of awkwardly phrased dialogue here, but not being able to be as good as the other Robin. And 
then from there, he just kind of loses his shit and says, how could you let me die? And this is, you know, dialogue like this makes me think that Loeb is kind of playing into, in some ways, I guess the emotional connection that a lot of readers have uh, to Jason's death. I mean, even people who weren't really collecting comics, or at least not collecting Batman comics, or who never liked Jason in the first place, or just whatever, I think everybody had a little bit of an emotional stake in Jason's death in as much as this was Batman's failure. You know, the death of Jason. And Jason, as Robin himself, is this is Batman's, up to that point, his biggest mistake. He made other ones, you know, after. But God knows, up to that point, Jason Todd was Batman's biggest mistake. You know, ever making this guy Batman, to, or, sorry, ever making this kid Robin to begin with was just the wrong fucking thing to do. And so this dialogue kind of plays into all of that and also just kind of plays into a lot of Batman's own insecurities about things, you know? And I think it's actually really well done dialogue, except where, you know, here at the, like I say, at the bottom of page four, not being able to be as good as the other Robin. That's just some really fucking clunky dialogue. I mean, I don't think anybody really talks that way. I mean, to me, the, the more efficient way to phrase that would have been not as good as the other Robin. You know, this whole being able to be, it's just very clunky to me. So if you just trim it down to not as good as the other Robin, to me, that's probably the smarter way to go, but what do I know? So from there, you know, we this, you know, a, a goodly bit of this issue in general plays to Jim Lee's strengths as a storyteller and as a writer. And as much as, you know, if you give Jim Lee these big, complex martial arts fight scenes, or if you give him a car chase or shit blowing up, you know, stuff like that. Basically what I'm saying is big, expressive stuff like that, action set pieces and whatnot. You know, that really works into a lot of what Jim Lee does well as an artist. And so basically what we're seeing through a goodly bit of this story is Jim Lee in his element, you know? And I don't mean that to sound snide or disrespectful or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, I've called him the the Michael Bay of comics. I've called Jim Lee the Michael Bay of comics. And guys, you know, if you choose to interpret that as a slam, I guess you're welcome to, but... To me, that's not an insult and it's not a praise. It's just, it's true, you know? And he is kind of the Michael Bay of comics. And I personally don't see that as a bad thing, you know? And, you know, whatever. I just think this this works really well. So, as all of this is going on, we're working our way through I guess Batman's internal monologue and what he starts realizing is, you know, there are some inconsistencies going on with all of this where even though Batman's in, in the middle of a fight and this is the biggest surprise he's had maybe in his entire life, 
he's still working his way through all of this, you know, trying to figure this out. Because his internal monologue, I think, is actually pretty insightful. He says, Once again, my unknown enemy refers to this as a game. Recruiting Poison Ivy, Killer Croc, Harley Quinn, the Joker, Scarecrow, and possibly Catwoman, they all have extraordinary intel on my personal life. To bring Jason into this, alive and arrogant as ever, the unexpected joy that he could have lived to be this age, the same age as Nightwing, my opponent is counting on Jason's appearance to affect my abilities, play on whatever guilt I harbor for Jason's death. And then he watches Jason, in quotation marks, do acrobatics and flips and shit like that, and Batman thinks to himself, his coordination, his speed, the acrobatics, it's all too familiar. Bottom line, Jason was never this good. The purloined letter, when the answer is in plain sight. And from there, Batman basically puts two and two together, and he actually shouts at this guy that he's... And he's, he's very careful in how he phrases this. He doesn't say that you are not Jason Todd. He doesn't say that. You know, what he says is that this guy who's pretending to be Jason Todd is not, and I quote, the Robin who died. You know, and he's choosing his words carefully. You know, yeah, Jason's grave is empty. Yeah, this guy was standing beside it. Yeah, he, uh, he looks like Jason. Yeah, he's he's got some kind of typical Robin moves or stereotypical Robin moves. But bottom line, He's the wrong age to be Jason. His moves seem to be modeled after Nightwing as opposed to Jason. You know, so on and so on and so on. You know, Batman's starting to see holes in the illusion here. You know, to make it... And Batman, his internal monologue resumes here. It says, to make it truly... Or rather, to make it perfect. For me to truly believe that this was Jason, he would have called me Bruce. Whoever orchestrated this, and I believe that person knows withheld my secret identity. And so he's bas Batman is basically working out that all of this is a scam. And it's at that moment that Jason, in quotation marks, starts melting. He's turning to mud, and it's revealed that this is Jason, not Jason, this is not Jason Todd. It's actually, it's actually Clayface. And so Batman says over his shoulder... Or rather, a voice comes over Batman's shoulder. This is actually Tim, um, who says, you know, when did you figure this out? And Batman says, it actually took a while, but ultimately, it was on the ground. There was mud. There was clay. And basically, he realized that this was Clayface mimicking the role. And so... And then, you know, Batman explains a little bit more of his thought process to Jason. And it's just some really insightful writing. I mean, you know, so often Batman is called the world's greatest detective. And, you know, honestly, I don't think we've seen a, a whole lot of that in the movies and stuff up to now. And even the comics, you know, you don't really see real detective work in the comics. I mean, nine times out of ten, these lazy comic writers, what they do is they have Batman come across some substance and then he says... There's only one place where you can get this fucking bullshit over here. And it's, it's over here at the Ace Chemical Company and all of that stuff, you know. And there's only one place where you can find uh, this type of plant. 
So that must be Poison Ivy's hideout, you know, just fucking stupid stuff like that. But here what we see is Batman, it's not any single thing that gave Clayface away. It was basically the preponderance of evidence and the strange coincidences and all of this other stuff that was going on. It wasn't any single thing. There was no smoking gun. It was basically a bunch of little things that added up to Batman figuring out he's being scammed here, you know? And so instead of saying, there's only one thing that can prove that this, you know, he doesn't fucking do that. He says that this guy's moves are modeled on Dick Grayson's. He's the wrong age. He's a lot older than Jason would have been if he'd lived up to now. And his voice is a little gravelly. It's a little bit off. He never actually called himself Jason. He never called me Bruce. And it's no single thing that gave it all away. But the, I, basically, I guess what I'm saying is Batman is kind of taking a little bit more of a holistic approach with his observation, putting together the clues and realizing this guy, whoever he is, is not Jason Todd. You know, I don't know necessarily who he is because I'm too busy beating his ass right now. But this person is not, in fact, Jason Todd, you know. And so that to me is, well, detective work. What it, the fuck is detective work? But it is Batman being, he's being observational, you know. He's putting together clues on the fly, I might add. I mean, at the same time, he's putting together all of this, you know, all of these clues and whatnot. He's beating the shit out of Clayface. I mean, it needs to be said that, you know, Batman, you know, this stuff is not happening in a vacuum. Batman's got other shit on his mind, you know, but he's still able to work all of this out and realize that he's being scammed here. You know, and I just want to put all of this on pause and say, you know, this is right here on page 16. I just fucking did. I can't believe I haven't said it before now. I just fucking dig Jim Lee's take on Robin. I just like this Robin outfit. You know, this one that was designed by Neil Adams. And I think it debuted like 1990, 1991. I forget the year, but it was Batman number 457. This is the new Robin outfit that was given to Tim Drake. I dig Tim overall, but I really dig this outfit. You know, I always have. And this, and I especially dig the way that Jim Lee draws it, you know? He has a way of making this suit look so much more functional than when you think about it, it really would be. And so just overall, I I, I really dig Jim Lee's work on Batman in general. I really dig this, you know, Jim Lee's version of Tim. You know, this is just a cool looking out... Uh, an already cool-looking Robin outfit is made all the all that much cooler when Jim Lee's drawing it, you know? That fucking plays for me. Now, it's not... I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's quite perfect because, you know, the the symbol on... the R symbol on... on Tim's chest is... I think, you know, the best you can say is that it's... is that it's a, a little bit... Uh, inconsistent, right? Because on page one, what we see is that it doesn't look quite on model, but the R symbol on on Tim's chest 
it's close enough. You know, that's what this version of, uh, of the R symbol, this is more or less how it's supposed to look, right? But then you get to, you get, this is, I, I think it's page 16 here. It's Batman and Robin holding what's left of the Jason Todd costume that Clayface was wearing. At the very bottom of that page, we see Tim standing on the rooftop with Batman, and the R on Tim's chest is a little bit more like the Burt Ward R. Actually, you know what? I don't even think that's right. I think it's actually the inverse of that. It's a, it's a yellow R on a black background. It's supposed to be a, a black R on a yellow background. But fucking whatever. So, I think that's how it's... Whatever. I don't know. Um, whatever. So... The point is, it's not quite on model. Instead of being that sort of cursive-y, sort of sharp, scripted R that's detachable from Robin's chest and he can kind of use as a blade if he needs to, which I've always thought was a kind of stupid idea. This is It looks like this is just a sort of standard, conventional R. So, whatever. Anyway, so moving right along here. I, I should mention, though, actually, before we move out, as all of this stuff is going, we're seeing this tremendous lightning storm going on. And it looks like there's just lightning flashing all around. You know, the, uh, the characters are getting pelted with rain and whatnot. And it's, it just, this is, it's a very sort of movie type of electrical storm, you know, where lightning is flashing through the sky almost nonstop. And you can just imagine all the thunder and the booms, the impact of the rain hitting the rooftops. And it's just drenching everybody in, in the rain. It's just, it's, just fucking cool. I dig it. You know, this is just really well done art. And again, I mean, I'm not trying to gush or anything like that when it comes to Jim Lee, but I think Jim Lee is one of those artists that kind of proves that age old adage that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that Jim Lee and his prolificacy, especially since Hush, you know, starting with and since Hush, it's basically kind of turned a lot of people against him such that he's kind of treated with a little bit of disrespect. I mean, I'm not saying that he's the greatest artist in the history of comics. You know, I don't think I'd ever make that claim. I mean, to me, guys like Steve Ditko or Carmine Infantino, Neil Adams, to some degree or another, maybe even you could say John Romita, you know, guys like that have a much better claim to being the greatest that there's ever been. Shit, I'd even listen to Jack Kirby, and I'm not a I'm not a Kirby fan, at least as far as his line style is concerned. I'm no Kirby fan. I'd even listen to that though before I'd ever listen to somebody say Jim Lee's the greatest. So I don't want I don't want to give you the wrong impression on the one hand. But on the other hand, I do think that Jim Lee kind of takes a little bit of unnecessary abuse from people simply because they're so familiar with his art as to be kind of sick of it. They're sick of seeing his name. And I think that, you know, that kind of frustration, it tends to ignore the things that Jim Lee legitimately does do really well, you know? And it's it, it's just, it's a shame, you know? It, it It's a shame. There is a kind of a neat little character moment, though. Uh, uh, this is at the bottom of page 17, where Catwoman says that, you know, for what it's worth... I'm glad it wasn't Jason. And then Batman says that he isn't because the fact that it's not Jason means that the person or persons responsible 
are still out there, and Batman still has no idea who these people are, you know? And that just seems like a very Batman thing to say that, you know, no, it's not necessarily altogether positive or good news that Jason was responsible for this, if this was in fact Jason, but he's not because he's dead. Jason is dead, and he never came back from the dead. But at least that would be an answer, as terrible as it would be. That's still an answer, you know? The way that it is right now, Batman has no fucking idea who's responsible for all of this. So, I don't know. All around, that's just some really... That's some really good stuff. I Maybe that's the way to put it. I dig that. So, it, it plays for me. So, at the Watchtower... Batman basically meets up with Oracle, and I don't want to go so far as to say that this is a completely superfluous scene, but I can't help, I can't shake the feeling that basically what Jim Lee wants to do here, or somebody wants us to do, is not so much pat out the issue, although maybe, but basically wants to take another look at Barbara Gordon, and I guess if you want to think about it from a strictly mechanical standpoint, basically what comes out of all of this is it's a chance for somebody to confirm suspicions that Batman already has as to who designed that that electronic relay that he found in the Batcave, and Barbara says the design work was flawless, and so Batman asks if she has any leads on who built it, and she says that she thinks that she does, and then she goes on to say that she thinks that he does too, or he wouldn't have asked her. And so it basically is allow it, it basically allows Batman to sort of talk this out a little bit instead of having more internal monologue. Now, I don't have a problem with internal monologues or something like that. But one of the things that Jeff Loeb has done all through this story is establish that Batman is suffering at least somewhat from a severe case of confirmation bias. And he's well aware of that. And so what he's trying to do in this scene, I think, is basically bring a little bit more eh, objectivity into the proceedings, right? Such that this allows Batman, number one, another scene with Babs, which I kind of regard as an inherently positive thing. Number two, it deals with Batman and his tendency in this story to allow himself at times to be overwhelmed, or even for that matter, just live in denial, be subject to confirmation bias, just fucking whatever. You know, and this allows a second set of eyes to say that Batman is right, which is an important thing to to realize going into the next scene on the story, which is to say Batman's meeting with Harold. And what we basically get here is it's basic I, Batman and Harold, they don't really have a too much of a chance to really have it out with one another. But it basically is made clear that Harold didn't necessarily want to betray Batman, but he was offered oh, the ultimate bribe, you know? 
which is to say happiness, you know? And Batman's in, uh, internal monologue says that when I first met Harold, he was all alone, friendless, homeless, but gifted when it came to the repair of machines and electronics. For a long time, he worked in the cave, access to the cars, the computers, always silent, in many ways as alone as when I found him. Through the years, I used all my resources to find a way to repair Harold's body, but medical science is not like crime. There's not always an answer. Which, that is a little bit hard to believe because apparently there was in fact an answer for Harold. Bruce just never found it, you know? And <clears throat> to be fair to everybody involved, something more may have come out of this, but unfortunately it's at that moment that Harold gets shot to death. He gets shot twice by Hush, who's holding what looked to be twin 45s. And this is finally Hush. You know, no fake outs, no Clayface pretending to be Jason Todd, pretending to be Hush, no Harvey Dent pretending to be Hush, just for purposes of misdirection. None of it. This is the real Hush that we're seeing here. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of took this pretty hard when I was reading this ish, this story for the first time. And the reason for that is because I believe uh, Harold was introduced back in Batman number 458. Well, let me rephrase that. No, he was not actually introduced back in Batman number 458. He was, he joined Team Batman in Batman number 458, but he actually uh, made his first appearance, I believe, in The Penguin Affair, which was a two or three part Batman story from monthly Batman. I forget the exact issue numbers, but for sure, the storyline is called The Penguin Affair. So if you're interested in that, Fucking Google it and you can find the issues that way. But that's the name of the story, The Penguin Affair. He joined Batman's team, though. I believe in, it, it was in Batman... Num it was either Batman number 458 or Batman number 459. I'm pretty sure it was Batman number 458, though. And basically what this does is it, it allows Batman to have all of this really high-tech uh, gear in a very in-universe kind of plausible type of way. He's basically got this mechanical and electronic fucking genius working for him. And so if Batman needs to have certain gadgets or whatnot in the story, well, you can just say, well, fucking Harold built it, you know? And instead of... Because one of the questions that you kind of have to ask, you know, whenever you become, I guess, a little bit more conversant with Batman and his world, is that he's got all of this high-tech stuff. And the question instantly becomes, where does he get it? Now, it's unlikely that he that he would get it from the sharper image, may it rest in peace, because if he can get it from the sharper image, 
anybody can get it from the sharper image. And besides, the sharper image doesn't sell half the shit that Batman would need. You know? So it doesn't answer the question of how Batman has technology that's not widely commercially available. Okay, so then you start thinking, well, maybe Wayne Enterprises makes Batman's gear. Fine. Well and good. How do they not know that they're making Batman's gear, you know? I mean, the Nolan movies somewhat addressed that by recruiting Lucius Fox knowingly into Batman's mission. But even that doesn't really make sense, since you'd imagine that the technicians at Wayne Enterprises would probably recognize that Batman is flying around in a uh, Gotham City in The Dark Knight Rises using an experimental and unreleased Wayne Enterprises fucking prototype. So, what the fuck? So, Harold was a very convenient and very logical way of sidestepping all of that. You know, he's on the payroll, so to speak. I mean, Batman gives Harold work, he gives him a roof over his head, he gives him clothes, he gives him a place to sleep. You know, he takes care of Harold. You know, this is what Harold wants to do. He wants to fucking build stuff. So why not build stuff for Batman? You know, it shows Batman being altruistic. It shows Batman being strategic. Well, actually, first it shows Batman being altruistic in as much as he's helping somebody who desperately needs it. Harold can't make a living on his own. He's just too fucked up and deformed. It's also Batman being strategic because he's taking Harold off the table. No one else is going to be able to use Harold uh, to build their stuff and then maybe get an edge over Batman, you know? And so it's basically Batman playing kind of three-dimensional chess, you know, with his, you know, with his crusade. And that works for me on a lot of levels. Plus, like I say, it allows Batman to have gear that nobody else has and that nobody else has a patent on, you know? And it does it in a way that protects Batman's secret identity. It just, having Harold running around solves so fucking many problems. And to me, it's it, it's just kind of fucking cheap and lazy and kind of short-sighted for a writer to just come along and just fucking kill him, you know, because we need to have a shocking ending, you know? So, yeah, I mean, like I say, you know, I do enjoy Hush on a lot of levels, but it kind of fucking pisses me off. You know, who do you think you are to just come along and just willy-nilly kill characters, you know, that you didn't create... You know, ne you've never written, you've never even fucking touched this character before, Jeff Loeb. So what gives you the right to kill him off? You know, who do you think you are? I mean, say whatever you want about Alan Grant, but at least he created Harold. And, you know, I think it kind of falls morally within Alan Grant's rights for, you know, him to kill the character off. But who do you think you are, Jeff Loeb? You know, I mean, once you have Hush kill somebody else, it just kind of bothers me, you know? Especially since, you know, Harold, he's not indispensable to the story, but he's really fucking helpful, you know, and I, I get it. You know, what they need is somebody who had inside access to the Batcave and could plausibly have given Hush access to, <clears throat> to all of Batman's secrets. And when you think about it, Harold is the only one who could have possibly done that, you know, so I get it on a story level. But you know what? Here's the thing. If it doesn't work for your fucking story, tell a different fucking story, you know? So, anyway, whatever. I don't want to rant. So, that's basically, though, the end of the issue. And that pretty well leads us into Batman 
number 619. Cover date is November of 2003. On sale date is September of 20, sorry, September 24th, 2003. Cover price is 225. Title, <clears throat> title is The End. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Editor is Bob Shrek. Story synopsis for the end is as follows. Batman cradles the dead body of Harold, his former aide. Hush is standing over them, his guns still smoking. Batman still has no idea who Hush truly is. He launches himself into, uh, launches into him, meaning Hush. He launches into Hush with a flurry of blows, but Hush keeps a safe distance from him. Hush re finally reveals himself to be... Da -da -da -da, Tommy Elliot. Batman had believed that the Joker had previously killed Tommy, but that turned out to merely be Clayface in disguise. As Hush, Tommy wants revenge on the Wayne family. Dr. Thomas Wayne had saved the life of his mother after a staged car accident. Elliot wanted his parents to die so that he could collect the inheritance. Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent arrive to give Batman backup. Harvey shoots Hush two times in the chest, and Hush falls backwards into the bay. Gordon is then, a, is then forced to arrest Dent. Over the next two weeks, Batman systematically figures out Elliot's plan from the beginning. As he explains to Superman, Elliot had been planning the, the attacks for over a year, and had the chips Harold placed inside the Batcomputer leave subliminal messages showing Th Thomas Elliot's image, which is why Batman thought of him after the Batline was cut back in the first issue of Hush, or second issue, actually. Superman has already done several sweeps of the river, but hasn't found Elliot's body. Knowing that his enemy was in fact Elliot, Batman deduces that he placed some sort of tracker on his head during the surgery, and asks, uh, asks Superman to burn it out with his heat vision. Superman reluctantly complies. Although Elliot seems to be gone, Batman still has to figure out who the true mastermind of this entire affair is. Who told Elliot that Batman was secretly Bruce Wayne? The, the trail leads Batman to Arkham Asylum. He finds that, that it's been the Riddler pulling the strings the whole time. The Riddler's been dying, or rather the Riddler had been dying, of terminal cancer and had used one of the Lazarus pits to save his own life. In his temporary insanity caused by the pit, Riddler realized that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Healed from the illness, he decided that he wanted to make it big in Gotham. He was tired of being just another crook with a gimmick. So he hooked up with Thomas Elliot, whom he met while researching his illness, and the two decided to play the ultimate riddle against Batman using all of Gotham's supervillains as pawns. Riddler also tells Batman that he created the character Hush, Elliot's identity under the bandages. Batman, however, pulls a trump card on the Riddler. His obsession with riddles will always prevent him from revealing Batman's secret identity to the world, and Batman warns that if the Riddler does try something like this again, Batman's going to turn him over to Ra's al Ghul. Batman also asks the location of Jason's body, but the Riddler doesn't really know it, which pisses Batman off something fierce, causing him to punch Riddler 
and knocks his ass out. After conferring with the Riddler, Batman buries Harold on a hill near, near Wayne Manor, having forgiven his betrayal, where he meets up with Catwoman. Catwoman tries to comfort Batman, but he still has too many doubts about his trust in other people. She approaches him, expecting to, expecting to kiss him, and mutters the word hush, which makes Batman lose control and his faith in her. Batman thinks that she, meaning Catwoman, might have been part of this all along and grabs her arm and basically uses a little bit of excessive force. Catwoman steps back and realizes that their relationship's over, and before leaving him alone, she tells him that someday he's got to learn to trust people for who they are. Batman thinks of her last message, but in the end, he stays near Harold's tombstone. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this cover, which is to say the standard cover, this shows Batman, Robin, and Oracle standing, or maybe sitting, on a rooftop in Gotham City with a red sky and a police blimp just kind of hovering around in the background. And it's a pretty good cover, but there were some variants to this cover. One variant showed pretty much the entire cast of heroes, or at least protagonists, in this story. So from left to right, what we see is, and this, by the way, is sort of a takeoff on the standard cover, but instead of the sky being red, it's actually green. And I think there's a reason for that, too, but I'll come back to that in a minute. So starting from the left and then working our way to the right, we see Robin, Batman, Oracle, Jim Gordon, Huntress, Superman, who's floating in midair, Nightwing spinning one of his uh, sticks around. And it needs to be said that this is Harvey Dent in the bandages, not Hush. You need to look close, but look at the, look at the clothes that the bandaged figure is wearing. This is Harvey, not Hush. This is some misdirection going on here. Follow, and then finally, there's Catwoman. Now, you might ask, why is it that the sky here is green in this variant cover as opposed to red as it is with the standard cover? And the only reason I can think of is that the standard cover is red because that offers some really good contrast over and against Batman himself, who's now the centerpiece of the standard edition cover. But if you look at this variant cover, Batman isn't necessarily the the centerpiece of the cover anymore. Standing center in the cover is Superman. And not only is he in the center of the cover, he's actually floating in midair. And so what you would have is Superman's cape against the sky. And Superman's red cape against the red sky might not look so good, Whereas Superman's red cape against a green, a, a green sky offers some pretty good contrast. So that, I think, is what's going on here. There's another cover, similar to this one, that shows all of the villains uh, that made uh, appearances of varying lengths in this story. And so starting from left to right, you've got Hush, the Riddler, Harley, Ivy, Clayface, uh, Killer Croc, Rachel Ghoul, the Scarecrow, Talia, and then standing closest to the camera, you know, in quotation marks, the camera, is the Joker. So it's sort of, 
I guess, a counterpoint to the cover, the variant cover that has all of the heroes and uh, protagonists on the Gotham rooftop. This villain variant has them in a graveyard, all standing over Batman. So, anyway, another variant shows the Riddler moving all of these different characters across a a chessboard, as though they're chess pieces. And I kind of like the Joker figure because he's wearing a t-shirt that says, I killed Jason Todd and all I got was this lousy fucking t-shirt, is what I think it's supposed to say. So, it, it looks like what it actually says is, I killed Jason Todd and all I got was this lousy F t-shirt. So what I think we're supposed to say is that that actually says fucking t-shirt. Actually, no, wait, does that say F shirt or does that say T hyphen shirt? Now I have to, well, fucking whatever. I don't know. So, anyway, of all of these covers, well, pick your favorite, I guess. So, to get into this issue proper, I kind of got a little bit pissy with the last issue. I suspect I'm going to get pissier yet with elements of this issue. And basically what we're seeing here is, this is on uh, pages two and three. It's once again, Jim Lee using that sort of four panel grid layout, where he has one panel on the left, one panel on the right, and then two panels stacked one on top of the other in the center. And the negative space between those four panels creates a sort of grid that as I've said before, this is kind of, sort of, shaped like a capital H. H for hush, perhaps. So, again, I've said that, you know, I wasn't sure, but then I think in the last episode I just said, fuck it, I'm just going to assume that Jim Lee is doing this on purpose at this point, because it, admittedly, it does look kind of cool. So, Batman's internal monologue, as he's Going on the offensive now with Hush, he says, This is not the first time I've been confronted by a man whose face is hidden by bandages. Previously, that person was revealed to be Clayface, pretending to be Jason Todd, my long-dead partner. Years ago, Harold was found wandering the streets by the Penguin. Taking advantage of his loneliness, the Penguin used Harold's unique abilities to aid in criminal activity. I'd hoped to have broken the pattern of Harold's trust in those who didn't merit it. He was invaluable to me as a mechanic in the cave. I gave him unfettered access to the computers. But in his silence, there was a yearning to repair his body and voice, one which my true enemy took advantage of, and Harold betrayed me. It cost, it cost him his life. My world of late has been a series of, of distractions, ruses, and misdirection. Old villains, blah, 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 blah. So... Basically, what we're seeing here is Batman processing what's happened to Harold, you know? And there is a, there's a degree to which this is kind of a quid pro quo. Harold gets food, Batman gets toys, and everybody's happy. But like I say, there is a strategic element to, behind Batman taking Harold in, in as much as he's taking Harold off the board, so to speak. You know, because Harold's working for Batman, at least theoretically, he can't work for anybody else, you know? He can't make 
toys and gadgets and shit for anybody else. And so that's one of the things that I kind of like about Harold working for Batman is he's basically an example of Batman. He's basically playing a few different angles with one action. You know, I like that, you know, Batman doesn't do anything for just one reason. You know, there are any number of reasons why Batman does any single thing. And taking Harold in, why should that be any different, you know? And it just kind of fucking pisses me off that, once again, Jeff Loeb just fucking kills the guy. So, anyway, whatever. So, from, from there, what we're basically seeing is Batman and Hush duking it out with one another. And what ultimately comes out here is, you know, as we work our way through all of this, is Tommy Elliot is, is Hush. Now, I've got criticisms for this, really, on multiple levels. Basically, what we see here is Harvey Dent save Batman and blow Hush basically right off the bridge, which where we can assume that if the gunshots didn't kill Hush, the fall off the bridge did. And indeed, Hush stays dead, because damn it, this is my headcanon. So, Harvey saved Batman, right? Which we'll come back to in a moment. But for right now, Tommy Elliot, he was Hush all along. So, stop me if this sounds familiar. Jeff Loeb writes a Batman story that's sort of a whodunit, and one of the prime suspects, or at least a potential suspect, gets killed in the middle of the story. Not because such a thing makes any fucking sense whatsoever, but because Jeff Loeb wants to do a little bit of misdirection. That way, when the killer gets revealed as somebody that we believed had been, uh, somebody that we believed was deceased and had died earlier in the story, we get that shocking reveal moment. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, because I was talking about the long Halloween there, not Hush. So, whatever. I mean, it's a little bit of a stock trick that Jeff Loeb uses. And you know what? I wouldn't mind that, you know, as a writer, you've only got so many tricks in your bag of ideas. And so I don't really mind so much the fact that Jeff Loeb did it twice. What kind of bothers me, I don't even mind that he did it twice in a whodunit story. What kind of bothers me is that it's done in two different Batman whodunit stories. You know, it's like, do you not, do you just not have any other ideas here, dude? You know, because this is like the second time now you've done a whodunit story where a bunch of people are fucking dying here. And then you kill your, one of the obvious suspects, you know, this brand new character that nobody's ever heard of before. He's got a prominent role in this story. Gee, I wonder if that's the guy. So, not because it makes any fucking sense whatsoever, but strictly for purpose of misdirection, you, you publicly execute the guy, and then that's supposed to be it. Okay, fine. You know what? That's kind of cheap, but I'll go with it. And, you know what? Fuck it. I'll even ride with the idea that it was that it was Clayface in the graveyard that was impersonating 
Jason Todd. But now you have Clayface, who's impersonating all of these different people. And it's kind of like, you know, Clayface, I guess, as far as Jeff Loeb is concerned, it's like this sort of all-purpose fucking scroll. You know, it's like Clayface can do anything. He's just willing to be everybody's uh, decoy, I guess. And, you know, why would Clayface agree to something like that? Well, Jeff Loeb never tells us. You know, so why would he agree to pose as a murder victim? Don't know. Why would he agree to impersonate Robin? Hey, no idea. None of this stuff gets fucking explained. You know, so on top of all of this, what we've been told is Tommy Elliott is a brain surgeon par excellence, but apparently all surgeons can do all different types of surgeries. So apparently Tommy Elliott, his skills are not only that he can fix Bruce and the brain injury that he had earlier in Hush, but he can also fix he can also fix Harold, who whatever his problems were, they just weren't with his brain. They were with his body as well. He can also fix Harvey because, hey, a brain surgeon, yeah, he can do plastic surgery. Why not? It's all the same. It's all surgery, right? Fucking retarded. Anyway, so one of the things that I can say, though, as, as uh, I guess like a defense, is the fact that Harvey basically having his face surgically repaired basically banished the monster. It allowed Harvey to take full control once again. And so now it's Harvey who's got control of everything. Now, this becomes a little bit of a problem since why would Harvey, who's presumably an otherwise morally upright kind of guy, why would he knowingly collude with a self-professed supervillain? Well, we don't know. How did he get Jim Gordon's service weapon, presumably out of, uh, out of some police department somewhere, so that he could use that to, to shoot Hush to death? Hey, we don't know. There's just so fucking much that's left on, this, uh, on the table here in terms of how the fuck did half of this stuff even happen that Loeb never makes any attempt to answer that it kind of bugs me. You know? And then on top of all of that, what we're basically led to believe is that Harvey Dent is somehow gonna face criminal charges. Now, who the fuck is commission? Well, I can't even call him commissioner. Who the fuck is Jim Gordon to arrest anybody at this point? Because he's fucking retired, right? He, unless I'm missing something, once you're retired from the police force, you don't really have the legal right to arrest somebody. Now, yeah, I guess you could do a citizen's arrest, but why would you do a citizen's arrest? Batman was clearly the victim here. He was under attack. His life was being threatened by somebody who's clearly a murderer or an attempted murderer, certainly a fucking arsonist. You know, I mean, first off, I can't imagine Harvey Dent being charged with jack fucking shit but in the event that he is, I can't imagine him landing in front of a judge that would even want to hear this. My guess is the judges laugh that out, laugh that right out of the courtroom. But even if he didn't, I can't imagine that there's a jury anywhere in this entire fucking world that would convict Harvey Dent. I mean, this is this is just fucking stupid. But no, it's just fucking arbitrary drama. 
you know? You know, why would Jim arrest somebody for saving Batman's life, you know? But no, it, it's more dramatic if 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 Gordon arrests Dent, even though it doesn't make any goddamn sense whatsoever, you know? I mean, like I say, this kind of works as a conclusion to Batman, you know, sort of like as a series finale, you know? So I'll roll with it, but man, some of the things that happen here are just fucking retarded, you know? And this is by far one of the best examples, you know? I, I don't know how the fuck Harvey Dent got his hands on Gordon's weapon. I mean, what makes Gordon's weapon so special? Why don't you just go steal one or buy one or whatever? Why does it have to be Gordon's Gordon's gun, you know? And if he has Gordon's gun, why does Gordon's have... Whatever, it's just fucking stupid. So, anyway. And another question is, why is Hush wearing bandages? You know, why does Hush have the costume that he does? You know, it doesn't really make any sense because this is the first time Batman set eyes on Hush in this story. So why would Tommy wear bandages at all? It makes sense to the reader, number one, because the bandages covered Harvey's face because, you know, we got to get a Dark Knight Returns reference going in here somewhere. But why would Hush dress the same way as Harvey? Well... Loeb never tells us that. You know, there's just so much about this story that is just never fucking revealed. You know? It's damned annoying. So, anyway. Jim Gordon is very scrupulous about the law. But he apparently doesn't mind Batman removing murder victims from crime scenes and then burying them on his own. You know, because, hey, they, he's, he's Batman, you know? God, that's so it's fucking stupid. You know, anyway, we get a, a neat little moment here, though, later on between the Huntress and Catwoman. And they, there's some obviously some unresolved tension that's going on there. And once again, I just fucking dig the Huntress, you know, and I dig the way that Jim Lee draws the Huntress. You know, she's got a very. A very well, considering how much skin she's showing, she's got a very practical type of outfit, you know, especially her boots. You know, these look like very tough, very durable, very functional, and yet kind of stylish combat boots. You know, you could picture somebody like her wearing boots like these. You know, yeah, she's wearing an outfit that shows off a lot of skin and stuff because this is still a superhero comic, but nevertheless, this is an, an otherwise very functional uniform, considering. You know, I just dig the Huntress. I dig this era of the Huntress. It's just fucking cool. And also kind of dig the idea of Helena and Selena just having this little moment together because, you know, they are mother and daughter in another universe. And it does kind of play for me, you know, that if you're familiar with their history from Earth 2, well, it just, it, it works, I guess is what I'm saying. So, I don't know. Overall, this is a neat little moment. So from there, we get a different moment between Superman and Batman in the Batcave where Superman basically burns that homing device out of Bruce's skull. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like this. You know, this is just a neat little moment where they are comrades, you know, and on some level they're friends, you know. And I do like the idea that 
you know, at least at this point in their history, the idea of Superman and Batman having, you know, almost a rivalry with each other, that was really being put out to pasture. And honestly, you kind of have to credit Jeff Loeb with a fair amount of that. So, you know, credit where credit is due. So from there, we get this reveal of the Riddler being responsible for all of this stuff, you know, and, you know, there are maybe some plot holes that are going on here with all of this. But one of the things, though, that ultimately have this work for me is the fact that one of Batman's enemies, besides Ra's al Ghul and besides Bane, one of Batman's enemies figured out his secret. And he has a compelling reason to keep his mouth shut. Because when you think about it, Bane really doesn't have a reason not to tell people Batman's secret. You know, Raish arguably does. The Riddler, he's got every possible fucking reason to keep this to himself. You know, it's not necessarily in the Riddler's own best interests to publicize to the world that Bruce Wayne is, in fact, Batman. But on top of all of that, it's like that's not really enough. Batman needs a dividend. He needs to have some kind of leverage against the Riddler. So basically what he says is, you have a secret. If you tell the world my, my secret, I'll tell Ra's al Ghul your secret. So how do you think you, you'd stack up against the entire League of Assassins? So... One of the questions, though, that comes out of this is what exactly is it that happened with Jason's body? And the synopsis I read indicates that the Riddler doesn't know. But what the Riddler actually says is, that is a riddle, isn't it? And you can interpret that, that he knows and he's not telling, you know? And I don't know. I mean, what I always interpreted from all of this is the Riddler may not have necessarily the specifics, but he does know that Tommy Elliot stole Jason's body specifically to fuck with Batman. And as I finished uh, this story, the first time I read it, I thought, well, we know that there was a fake body, a clay face shell, more or less, that was buried in Tommy Elliot's grave. So what if Tommy Elliot buried Jason's body in Tommy's own grave? You know, who'd think to look there? So especially since Tommy Elliot's body is never actually recovered in the story, who'd think to look in Tommy Elliot's grave for Jason Todd's corpse, right? To me, it, it just, I don't know. I, I, there's nothing you can pin that on. It just seems like that would be the smart way to do it. You know, so after that, we get basically into the, I guess, sort of the wrap up, the climax of all of this, the denouement between Batman and Catwoman, where it's pretty clear that Batman still has trust issues sort of in general, not necessarily exclusively restricted to Catwoman, but he still has trust issues. And so what we're basically seeing here is that we're leaving this story and from my from the standpoint of my headcanon we're leaving this character 
on a kind of optimistic note, you know? The status quo is fundamentally different now as it was before. Jason's body's missing. Uh, Tommy Elliot is probably dead, but then again, maybe he's not. The Riddler knows Batman's secret. Batman has found love with Catwoman. And they do possibly have a future together someday. Batman, he's regained his friendship and his possibly his alliance with Harvey Dent. And this is arguably a very fitting capstone for Jim Gordon's relationship with Batman, that Gordon played a major role in saving Batman for once, you know? And there are so many things that come full circle that get turned on their head, get changed, turned around, spun in different directions by the end of this story that to me, I think it's actually very justifiable, irrespective of the number of plot holes and stuff that I've picked apart in this story. I still think it's justifiable to view this as sort of the canonical series finale for Batman. Again, this is not the end of Batman, not necessarily, but this is the end of his story, you know, and everything that happens after this, just leave it up to your imagination, you know? Maybe he does retire. Maybe he lives happily ever after. Maybe he keeps hammering away for a few more years. Maybe he has a few more adventures, just fucking whatever. But you can view this as the series finale, that the characters have rounded a certain point in their development. And so from here on in, you can just leave the rest to your imagination, you know? What happens after this point, it's whatever you want to happen, you know? And considering what happened in actual publication history, that's stuff that, guys, I just don't fucking want anything to do with. I just think those, are, those ideas are just stupid. You know, to me, Tim Drake deserves to be Robin. You know, he belongs in that function. You know, Harold, well, if this has to be the end of his story, there are maybe better ways that he could have gone out, but at least... At least he's not made a, a mockery of. You know, there are changes to the status quo that, honestly, to undo them is just fucking stupid. It's just retarded. Jason's dead. Leave him dead. Tommy Elliot is dead. Leave him dead. You know, Batman doesn't have a son. Leave him childless. He, or at least he doesn't have a biological son. You know, and there are just things that were done with this character that I just think are just bad ideas. I don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, I like using this as sort of the end of Batman from a canonical standpoint. To me, Hush is where the canon, if not necessarily the story, or God knows the character, this is where the canon ends. You know, you guys, maybe you can have your own personal headcanon with a different conclusion, whatever. I'm just saying, that from my standpoint, this is the end of the story from a canonical standpoint. This is the end of the Chronicles, you know? Not necessarily the end, just the end of what we know. You know, this is the end of the story. This is the series finale for Batman, the post-crisis Batman, and I like that. So, that is the end of my Hush mega series. I just want to thank, really, all of you for taking the time to listen to me blather on like this. You know, all of the hours and stuff that this that this series has lasted through. 
you know, which I guess in, you know, when all is all is said and done, I mean, we're going to be looking at probably nearly eight or nine hours, something like that, of me just rambling on at great length about Hush. You know, the things that I enjoy, the things I don't, but also just trying to, I guess, kind of shade in and nuance what I believe is my headcanon for... I was about to say Superman. My headcanon for Batman, his beginning, his middle, and not so much his end, but his conclusion. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So thanks all of you for listening to me. Really appreciate it. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, everybody. So bye, everyone. I'll see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, 
and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.